thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Top Gun Maverick is finally in theaters, blowing away records and expectations. For the next two weeks here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we explore the efforts involved in making this blockbuster, starting this week, featuring a discussion with the aerial filming coordinator. I mean, there was a massive emphasis on realism and authenticity, and you do have to put a cinematic value on things. I mean, there's some things in real life that should be super exciting in cockpit that are just not exciting. There's some things in there that, of course, you know, the 1% naval aviators in the world are going to be able to pick apart. But what we wanted them to feel, somebody like yourself could watch this movie and go, you know what? By and large, that thing was awesome. And it shows the general public a little bit about my life and career in the United States Navy and what I did. And I'm proud of what it looks like on that screen. And I feel like a lot of naval aviators who are reaching out to me who've seen the movie are calling me with that general vibe. And that's what we wanted. And if they feel that way, you can imagine what the general public must feel like when they watch the movie. What do we have here? Pete Maverick Mitchell. This is your captain speaking. What kind of mission is this? We're going into combat. Having any fun yet? Come on Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and phew, what a week. Top Gun Maverick opened worldwide this past week, as you well know, and what an opening. I'm told it is Tom Cruise's best domestic weekend opening for any film he's ever starred in. It's the best Memorial Day weekend opening for any film ever in the U.S., and it is widely loved by audiences. It's got an amazing Rotten Tomatoes score. Everything on our social media has all been very positive. I've seen it three times. I enjoyed it a little more every time. If you have not yet seen Top Gun Maverick, do yourself a favor, take a friend, go find the biggest screen you can with the best sound and the most comfortable chairs and watch Top Gun Maverick. I think we'll be talking about this for the next 30 years. We're certainly going to be talking about it on our next couple episodes, starting with this one with Kevin LaRosa, who joins us shortly to discuss the aerial filming. Now, maybe you caught it over the weekend. We launched a video and bonus episode based on our opening night theater event. We reserved an entire theater here in San Diego for Fighter Pilot Podcast family and friends and some past guests. And then after the show, we recorded the reaction of a panel of former Top Gun instructors that I hosted and featured Grand from episode seven. And we just heard from him again, as well as Chip Burke from episode 59 and Jambo, who was just on our last episode, episode 143. It was very well received. It's doing great on YouTube. And so if you have seen the movie, then go check that out so you can get a feel for what Top Gun instructors felt was right and wrong and righteous and ridiculous about the movie. And, you know, we didn't just roast it. We really did talk about some of the different nuances of the film. And so I thought it was good. And we had a really great time making it. Now, two quick questions relevant to Top Gun Month before we get to the interview. For everyone else who's been waiting for their questions to be answered, please keep waiting. We will come off this honeymoon soon, and we'll get to the rest of it. But for starters, Ken emailed us. I noticed on a few videos that Super Hornets go into Afterburner traveling down the catapult. Is there a reason for this? Is there some advantage over going into Afterburner before the cat shot? Well, sometimes, Ken, you have to go into afterburner before the cat shot if your aircraft is sufficiently heavy that it's needed. And they won't even shoot you if you don't first go into afterburner. So the shooter will give you the signal. You go into afterburner. You wipe out the controls, salute, or turn on the lights. And the troubleshooters like what they see. They'll send you off. Now, if you're below that weight, then it's just something that a lot of pilots will do. 
Partly, I think, because it's the first step anyway in the emergency procedure if you settle off the catapult, i.e. if you go off the catapult and you don't quite have enough end speed, the very first thing you're going to do is go to full afterburner. So especially on dark nights, a lot of pilots will just do that anyway, because why not? It doesn't cost you that much fuel, and it's just a little extra margin of safety to get that afterburner staged when you're on the catapult, when you don't need it as much as when you finally get off into the air, and by then it might be too late if it's just starting the stage. So good question. All right. Our second email is from Michael Woodruff from St. Louis, Missouri. Is a pilot able to raise a tail hook back up in flight once it is lowered or is it once it is down, it stays until reset after landing? So Michael, I flew four aircraft with tail hooks. And the first three were all purpose-built for the Navy. And that was the T-2C Buckeye, the TA-4J Skyhawk, and the FA-18A through D and EF Hornet and Super Hornet. And all of those have a handle to lower the tailhook, and that same handle allows you to raise it. Now, towards the end of my career, I had a chance to fly the F-16A and B, which has a tailhook. Some people don't know that. It's not to go to the ship. It's to take the barrier cables at the field. And that is an emergency procedure. So once you lower it, it is down and you require maintenance to put it up again. So if you were wondering, it's probably because you've heard of both Navy and Air Force type aircraft with hooks. And yeah, they're different. So we can put them down, put them up in Navy jets. Air Force is down for an emergency. All right, well, that will do it. I don't want to make you wait any longer because this is an amazing discussion. Now, one quick caveat, actually two. One is we do you know, have some spoilers, but hopefully if you're listening to this, you've probably already seen it more than once. And the second thing is, Kevin LaRosa decided to record outside and his neighbor chose that first half hour of our discussion to run his leaf blower. So our producer, Bernie, did his best to minimize it. But if you're wondering what the little bit of wine is behind Kevin's voice, that's what that is. If you just focus on what he's saying before you know it, it'll be gone. And so if you like the movie, I know you're going to enjoy this interview. Without any further waiting, let's get to it. Here we go. My guest today is Mr. Kevin LaRosa. He's a third-generation pilot and second-generation aerial coordinator and stunt pilot. He features heavily in the worldwide motion picture and television industries, coordinating and directing film sequences, both in the air and on the ground. Kevin is a member of the Screen Actors Guild and Motion Picture Pilots Association and has contributed to dozens of hit movies, including Iron Man, The Avengers, Transformers 5, and the subject of today's discussion, Top Gun Maverick. Kevin, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Vincent, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, good. I think we incidentally met in a way at Tailhook a couple of years back, although I only saw you from a distance and I'm sure you don't have any clue who I was, but we had a chance there to uh, see, I think it was the opening sequence. We sure did. Yeah, they gave us a little teaser there. I was very honored and lucky to be invited to uh, Tailhook that year. Along with a couple of my colleagues, I got honorary tailhooker uh, 2021, so that was very special. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we did get a little taste of uh, the movie there. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, now, thankfully, we've had a chance. Hopefully, everyone has to see it. And if we have any spoilers, I'll be sure to announce that before the interview. But at any rate, give us broadly, what was your role in Top Gun Maverick? My role in Top Gun Maverick was that of the aerial coordinator of the movie, which made me responsible for all of the flight sequences whether mounted cameras on the 18s, ground camera positions, the briefing, the debriefing, and the overall general safety of our flight ops, civilian side, and obviously working with Ferg, Brian Ferguson, my naval counterpart for the aviation coordinating. Secondly, I was the lead camera pilot on the movie. My responsibility was that of flying the L-39 Cinejet, the Phenom 300 camera jet, and our helicopter platform throughout the movie. All right, Kevin. So I don't know if you have kids or spend any time around them, but if you have a five-year-old and you ask him what he wants to be when he grows up or she, right, you hear astronaut and fireman and policeman and all these different things. How does a person <laughs> become an aerial coordinator and a demo pilot and all these things? I mean, is this something you wanted to do as a kid? When I introduced you, I mentioned you as a second and third generation. Sounds like you grew up in this world, huh? Yeah, Vince. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I grew up, uh, my dad has been my hero since I've been a little boy. He's still my hero today and my idol. When you grow up and your dad's flying on these cool movies and you get to go on exciting movie sets with him, you get the bug. And there's nothing else I ever wanted to do. This is exactly what I wanted to do since I've been a little boy. And there's only one thing that almost diverted my path. 
And that's the 1986 movie Top Gun. I was born in 1986, but I grew up with that movie and watched it hundreds of times. And that's the only thing that almost took me from my dream career. I wanted to be an F-14 pilot like Tom Cruise and almost diverted my path, if you will. But I stayed on course and uh, just what I got to do. And it's very special for me as a third generation pilot. Now I get to work with my dad in a way where I hire him and he comes on sets with me, including Top Gun Maverick. So it's a very special thing. That sounds like it. Is this something that you were, in a sense, born into or learned on the job? Or was there some formal education that you underwent? Great question. I would say, you know, I was lucky enough to get the experience as a young kid going on a lot of movie sets with my dad. Got to do a lot of fun jobs as a kid. I drove his fuel truck. I cleaned the helicopters and jets and airplanes. I got to be (laughs) part of his briefs and experience how that worked. So I was kind of just infused in motion picture aviation at a young age. I learned a lot. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. However, at some point in my teenage years, when I was getting my early ratings, helicopter pilot's license, my dad gave me some good advice. And I always speak on it because I think it's amazing advice. And he told a teenager who knows it all exactly what a teenager who knows it all doesn't want to hear. And that's, hey, if you really want to do this, you're going to have to stop doing it and go be your own pilot. Because no one's going to trust you as a junior, as my son, as a LaRosa. You have to go get your own experience reluctantly followed his advice, best advice of my life. Did lots of other jobs, Vincent. I do traffic watch Cessnas in LA for five or six hours a day. Radio helicopters, news helicopters, charter helicopters. I flew private jets all over Mexico, Canada, Alaska. I just did all these things and every one of them was purposeful. Every one of them I was building towards my dream goal of being a very well-rounded aviator in the motion picture aviation world. I wanted to be an aerial coordinator and stunt pilot that did jets, helicopters, airplanes, warbirds. And I knew that I needed all of these experiences to eventually obtain that goal. I got a very unique experience at a young age, 22 years old. I got to start flying for a company called Wolf Air Aviation. They had a Lear 25B. The B model Lear is a fun airplane. It's something that even you would enjoy, Vincent. It's got uh, the same engines on it as a T-38. Non afterburning, but they're CJ 610s or JD5s, I think it is. Might have that designation wrong, but it's a turbojet and the airplane is sporty, real small wing. It was experimental exhibition because it was modified with cameras. And the gentleman that I got to fly that with was Thomas McMurtry. For those of you that don't know him, feel free to look him up. He's on Wikipedia. This is a naval aviator who enjoyed an amazing career as a naval test pilot and then working for the Navy and even the CIA. And he flew everything from the U-2 to the predecessor to the SR-71. It just an incredible career. And this is the gentleman that took me under his wing flying this Lear. And the beauty was, is we did all these military contracts. I got to go fly with a lot of fast movers and big bombers. We would shoot all the promo stuff for Air Force and Navy. And I was exposed to military-style briefings and debriefs. I was exposed to formation flying, including IMC formation and night formation and things typically a civilian would never be exposed to. And I loved every bit of that because I was able to then apply that later in life as an aerial coordinator, especially when we go work on military movies like Top Gun Maverick. And I use all of those experiences. So Tom was an amazing person who taught me everything he could possibly teach me about flying that Lear, flying in general, and all of his really great military uh, stories and things he could give me. Well, it's just a real testament to a mentor, right? And the role that such a person can have on a young person's life. Absolutely. So then to end my journey, or I guess start my journey in my normal life, I think it was about 26 or 27, I made the decision that it was time to quit my real jobs, my full-time jobs, and just do an independent contracting service for the studios, which is what I do today. And I had about 5,500 hours between fixed wing and rotorcraft, and that's where the journey started. All right. Well... I hope by now everyone has seen Top Gun Maverick. I'm sure it's going to be a blockbuster and it'll be fun to see the initial results of opening weekend, but there's just so much here. I'm not sure where to begin because clearly you guys set out to uh, really paint naval aviation in the best possible light. And I think you succeeded. I guess I'll just take a stab at something to get us going. I mean, let's start with locations. I've flown a lot around the West Coast. It looked to me like I saw some China Lake and some Fallon. Clearly, there was some North Island and it looks like the Pacific Northwest and of course out on the boat. But where all did you guys end up going and what challenges, if any, were there with some of the different locations? 
Absolutely. Well, obviously, we hit pretty much every naval base on the West Coast, and there was a lot of different reasons. Sometimes the naval bases were specifically just close to terrain. That was epic terrain that we scouted that we wanted to be in the movie, and it was the closest place to service the aircraft. Sometimes those naval bases were actually in the movie. You'll recognize Miramar in there, of course. We based out of Fallon, Nevada a lot, because Fallon, as you know, is where Top Gun is. Mm -hmm. And that was an incredible experience for me, to say the least. But it was basically as far south as you can go on the West Coast to the north. So all the way from Miramar, all the way up to Whidbey. Whidbey was very special. One, I think it's a very unique base. I'm sure you've been there as a civilian. I'm very lucky to have gotten to spend time on that base. It's just this beautiful location out by the San Juans and... It's like this little dream island. It's probably one of the prettiest naval bases other than Miramar that I've ever seen. And we would take our jets deep into the Cascade Mountains. So it was our servicing point for the Cascades, which are heavily featured in the movie. Obviously not supposed to be a Cascades or somewhere else in the world. <laughs> That's right. But when you watch the movie, I think you look at it and you go, man, I have no idea where that is. It's pretty epic terrain. Yeah. Challenges. You know, I would say the Navy was very impressive. There was a lot of times we were bringing the L-39 and our equipment or the Phenom or the helicopter, we would live on these bases and we would get supported by different squadrons, which was very, very fun. You know, I can recall being at Fallon, little tip of the hat to VFC 13, the aggressor squadron out there, just amazing individuals. I know Ferg's deeply ingrained with them, but they hosted us and we basically lived at 13 for months. And, you know, we had the L39s, you know, in the hangars with the F5s and they let us use their briefing rooms and just incredible, nice and very generous host. In every naval base we went to, you know, we'd get assigned to a squadron that maybe had a little bit of room in the hangars. Once we'd get there, it was just like all hands on deck. Everybody wanted to help. They knew what we were doing. Most people that came up and talked to us would say, you know, I'm in the Navy because of that movie. And that's pretty special. <laughs> so just a wonderful feeling everywhere we went. Well, on this podcast, we've had guests recently who were involved in the filming of the first one, and it sounds like the environment was a bit different because back in 1985, when they were filming that, they were coming off the heels of the final countdown, and apparently there was some bad blood around some gifts that were misunderstood or something. I'm not really sure, but I guess a, a commanding officer got relieved, and so when the movie came to town, it was nobody wanted to touch it. So fast forward 30 plus years later, and everyone, like you said, who's <laughs> a lot of them was a very formative moment in their youth is now in the Navy and like, wait, I get to have a hand in the second one? Absolutely. Where do I sign? And so I'm sure you had no shortage of people bending over backwards. And, you know, just in our business anyway, as I hope you saw firsthand, we're generally speaking, pretty gregarious, excited folks that want to just share what we do and, and we enjoy life. You know, it's, there's a lot of risk, but there's a lot of reward. And so when a movie comes to town, yeah, sure. What can we do? Let's make it awesome. You know, the vibe that we felt everywhere we went was a big can do. How can we help? What can we do? How can I be a part of this? And that really helped make the movie. It was expensive. And Paramount, uh, from a public affairs side, had to pay for everything, you know, make sure that we were utilizing these aircraft in a way where we weren't pulling them away from their primary missions. So there's a lot of thought and a lot of expense gone into that. But along with that, the Navy was extremely helpful because I think they saw that the first movie in 1986 was one of the single biggest recruitment efforts in the United States Navy ever. And not just the Navy, other services and branches generated a huge burst of income and, and recipients. So that was pretty cool to see. So fast forward 30 plus years down the line, the Navy is looking at this the same way. Of, well, this is going to be a giant spike in recruitment if it has the same effect that the first movie did. I would think so. There was everything to gain there and a lot to lose, but I'm sure uh, you guys had a lot of conversations about how do we make it compelling and exciting, but also paint the Navy in their best light. And that's where I think Ferg came in and he'll be our guest on the next episode. He's already been on the podcast before. We're looking forward to having him back to fill in some of those details. But let's talk about some of the different challenges with filming military aircraft. I mean, you've got the base, right? So there's certain parts of facilities that are classified that, you know, I'm guessing you've got people people kind of escorting you around to make sure you don't trundle into anything. We see the F-35 in the opening scene, but otherwise it doesn't really play into the film. And I'm sure there's a lot of different reasons for that. And whether we want to go into it or not, I'll leave that up to you. But I just have to think there was a lot of, I don't want to call it obstacles or challenges, but just the fact that every day, if you had a briefing for what you were doing that day, I have to think there was some degree of back and forth between 
if you will, the creative lead, like, hey, this is the shot we're looking to get. And the person who's maybe responsible for the safety or the mission and like, hey, that's great, but this is the best we can do because of these risks. How did that go? And was there any kind of, I'm not looking for dirt, you know, I don't want to say was there headbutting, but was that process fairly easy or did it take some work? I think it, it evolved into a well-oiled machine, oh, cool. if you will. I mean, we were on the movie for a long time. You know what the secret weapon is to this whole formula is Berg. Berg was just incredible. I don't think this movie could have been made to the extent we made it without Captain Brian Ferguson. He was the guy in the trenches every day talking to the creatives and me going, okay, I need two E models here. I need two F models. I need this support crew. I need them here, them here. Berg was always sitting on his laptop in the corner, punching out emails and texts, and things would just happen. And then not only would they happen, but they were reliable. They were on time, where they needed to be, and that's because Ferg was working his magic behind the curtain, which was really cool. Also, Ferg you know, was heavily involved in all of the briefing and creative process. He was responsible for the movie. But to answer your question, we had a formula where we briefed every day, and it was about a two-hour brief. We would brief our cast for their in-cockpit footage sorties. We would brief my missions going out with, you know, E's or F's to go film exterior footage. And it'd take about two hours to get through those briefings when they'd go to the PR shop and we'd all meet at the jets and we'd get in the air and we'd meet in our respective ranges. And we got this down to a science. We would laugh because they're like, by the end of the movie, man, we're going to have this figured out. <laughs> and we really did. We'd have these big master briefs. I typically would lead all the briefs and debriefs with the help of Ferg. But we would start with creative. And in this big round table, it was a big double-wide lunchbox-type mobile station, if you will. Probably about 30 or 40 people packed in there, including the cast and directors and some of the producers. And then, of course, the naval aviators and my civilian assets as well, and my, my aviators. We'd go through creative. And the creative was, hey, you know, on this day, we're going here. At this light, at this angle, we're shooting this specific sequence. We would go all through those nitty-gritty things of how the face mask is going to be worn, when the mask comes down, you know, the smallest little details, painstaking little details. And then we would talk logistics. And logistics was, well, how do we go do that? And that was more of my part of, okay, you're in side number 205. You guys are stepping at this time, walking here. The logistics was pretty fun. And who's recovering? Who's launching? Where are we doing all this? Where we're meeting up? Times in the air, frequencies, all that fun stuff that you're used to. And probably most people that listen to this podcast are used to. And then we would always end it with safety. And safety, I'd usually go down my little list. And then Ferg would hit it, all of the parameters, everything that needs to be said about the fail-safes, uh, ejections, you know, ORM. Everything was hit in these briefs. And then we would walk. As you know, in the business that you're in and you come from, a debrief to me is equally as important as a brief. We would all walk back. We'd all watch the footage. We would learn our lessons. And it was standard. You drop your ego at the door. You sit there and you say, hey, I screwed up. I didn't do this. I didn't roll this camera. This We weren't in the right spot here. But that not only is what makes a very safe aviation program, that's also what makes movies really good. We've heard Joe Kaczynski, the director, say we shot 800 hours of aerial content. That's absolutely true. We use the 1% gold in the movie. And that's because we would sit there every day and painstakingly go, man, if that right wing was lower, we'd see that tree ripping by faster. And if Bob in the backseat was fumbling with his mask or pulling, you know, four and a half or five G's right here, it would look better. There were so many times that we just would tweak and tweak and tweak because we wanted this level of excellence that has never been seen on the big screen before. Well, and I think you achieved that having enjoyed the movie. And I hope again, the listeners have as well. You certainly did. And it's interesting because I don't think anyone who watches it thinks about some of those details, like you said, of, okay, the actor puts his visor down at this point. Some of that, of course, is cut in when you do the final editing. But the point is, you as the team making the movie have to think about all these little details so that I, as the viewer, don't right? I mean, when I see it, I just enjoy it, especially as someone who's lived the life. Of course, I'm going to find things that, you know, I have contention with, but for the most part, I enjoyed it, I guess. But any other viewer and most of the rest of the world doesn't even think about all these little details that you think about because it's just so seamlessly done together. And then in the final product, it's believable and enjoyable. Absolutely. I mean, there was a massive emphasis on realism and authenticity. And every step of the way, Ferg and the Navy was with us. And there was a big push. You know, we'd hit a creative detail and they would come and go, yeah, you know, it really doesn't work that way. It kind of works this way. 
you do have to sort of put a cinematic value on things. I mean, there's some things in real life that should be super exciting in cockpit that are just not exciting. That's right. <laughs> and I'm sure you can attest to a lot of that stuff. Like, you know, there's no rays of light and no choir sings to you when this happens, when you pass through <laughs> Mach 1.0, right? But there's just certain things that you have to put a little more emphasis on to make the movie exciting without compromising, you know, the authenticity of the movie. I think they did a really good job. There's some things in there that, of course, the 1%, you know, naval aviators in the world are going to be able to pick apart. But what we wanted them to feel, and we wanted to get to a point is where somebody like yourself could watch this movie and go, you know what, by and large, that thing was awesome. Yeah. And it shows the general public a little bit about my life and career in the United States Navy and what I did. And I'm proud of what it looks like on that screen. And it's a testament to what I did. And I feel like a lot of naval aviators who are reaching out to me, who've seen the movie, are calling me with that basic general vibe. And that's what we wanted. And if they feel that way, you can imagine what the general public must feel like when they watch the movie. And that's, I would say, the definition of success. And something you said reminds me, again, of some of the recent episodes we've had in this whole month of celebrating Top Gun, the school, and the movies. The gentlemen involved in the first one were told multiple times, apparently, by Tony Scott and others, it's, hey, guys, it's a movie, not a documentary. And so I don't know if that ever got told on this set, but I think you guys struck a good balance because, as I've even said on various episodes, look, if all you did was turn on the camera in the day of a life of a Top Gun instructor, it would be insanely boring. Yep. Even the flight itself would look boring because it's all very, well, I mean, if you're dogfighting, it can get exciting for a little bit, but there's not a lot of drama, generally speaking, and the debriefs last forever. And so, right, you have to take some liberties. And I think we all get that. And so, yes, while I look at the plot and I say, eh, okay, maybe it's entertaining. And that's what we want in the end of the day, right? Yep. You know, one fun thing, probably especially for your viewers, who I'm sure are a lot of naval aviators, is we spread the love in a way to a lot of different pilots who got to participate in the movie. It wasn't relegated to one or two, which I think kind of the first 1986 film was. It was just a couple of guys. And in this movie, it was driven that we wanted as many naval aviators as we can to get kind of a piece of this pie. And they all offered and brought different expertise, different personalities. And the fun part for me is we came up with these crew pairings with the talent. Sometimes you just find somebody who just meshed perfectly with an actor. And it was like, oh, you guys got to fly. Even though we would let everybody get in there. But as you know, we all have different personalities. And we had some real big personalities and pilots on the movie. A lot of them, you know, we got this creative side out of them, which I don't think a lot of them get to do in their normal line of duty. And they really started digging in and helping us, you know, find routes, and find mountains and figure out different ways to show the Super Hornet and its capabilities on camera, which is its own challenge, really. I learned an awful lot about how to make that airplane look cool and dynamic and agile. And there's certain things we learned we could do, make the airplane do, and me to counter what it was doing with the camera system to really sell it, which was pretty fun to do. But again, the pilots were all incredible. They all brought different skills and attributes to the table, and that was really neat. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. With regards to the point you just made as far as the Super Hornet and the aircraft that you mentioned earlier, did you find the two were paired well? I mean, obviously the Super Hornet can go pretty fast, I assume faster than your camera craft, but were the craft you were using uh, a good match for it, or did you have some challenges there trying to film it? It was a horrible match. Oh, was it? (laughs) Not nearly as fast as an F-18. Especially with a camera hanging out, right? Oh, I had a ton of drag sitting on the front of the thing. So yeah, our L-39 had to work really hard. Okay. I had a max structural speed of our camera mount of 350 knots and 3G. So you imagine when we start getting into canyons and we're doing these, you know, basic fighter maneuvers and dogfighting and stuff, I'm sitting there with my G meter and I don't want to go back and get yelled at by my crew chief. So I'm monitoring the G meter (laughs) sitting at 3Gs all the time, I thought. And we're always trying to hit 350. But here's something interesting for especially the pilots. Aerials are important in a movie, especially like Top Gun Maverick. We want to fly in formation, and we would do that. It was typically between 250 and 350 knots for the formation work. And that's when we're telling a story. So there's going to be times in the movie where you're looking over at Tom Cruise sitting in an F-18, and he's looking over and talking to us or something, and he rolls away. Well, that's formation. So we're just living in formation or dollying around him. But then we also need to be able to sell agility. And when you're in formation, you could be doing Mach 1.5, and the airplane's just sitting there in camera doesn't look like it's going 1.5. You have no idea. We have to sell speed with these differential or dissimilar platforms. 
So there was so many more times that we would prefer I would take this canyon route and I would have an 18 come ripping by with a hundred out overtake. And the camera would reach back and it would pan with him as he goes by. Now we're looking at an 18 go by with some smash on it. And what you're seeing is the compression of the background behind it. And it's ripping by in the background. And it makes the 18 look like it's doing, you know, 600 knots. And that sells energy. So again, if we watch the movie and everything just lived there, static in formation, doesn't matter what you're doing, but if it just lives there, it's kind of boring. It's kind of floaty. Mm -hmm. We always want to sell this dissymmetry, this differential of speeds so that things look like they're just hauling ass. And that's where the L39 was great because I can only go 350. So I might as well utilize its best characteristic and let those 18s haul ass by me. Right. And the point being, again, that the viewer doesn't even think about it. There's just this sensation of, wow, that thing's moving really fast, but they're not dissecting. Oh, gee, I wonder if the camera was positioned over here. And then, you know, with a little bit of zoom, it makes the background go by, et cetera, et cetera. So if you guys do your jobs, we as the audience don't even think about it. Tell me this though. Let's say you brief, you go out maybe just with one aircraft to make this question easy and you fly for an hour. How much footage might you have when you get back? And I'm not talking about that shows up in the movie, because I understand that's a creative decision later. You've got all this footage and you figure it out to make the story. But if you go out for an hour, what do you come back with? Do you think minutes, seconds, what? If you go out for an hour, you're coming back with minutes because you're not shooting on the departure. Typically, we leave as a flight of two. You're not shooting the departure. You're not shooting the ferry out there. That's all boring stuff. Right. You're not shooting the RTB. You're shooting story sequences once you get to the range, whatever range we're cleared to work in for that day or whatever terrain we're working. You're coming back with minutes. And out of those minutes for any given sequence, let's say we're doing one story point, we might come back with 10 takes. So 10 tries that we did that. Out of those 10 takes, maybe one or two of them are really good. Hmm. And out of those two takes and all the different sorties, we might not use any footage from that sortie because maybe we shot that again the next day and it was even better. So a huge expense and investment on the side of Paramount and a massive drive from Tom Cruise and Joe Kaczynski, the director, to make sure that, again, we were only utilizing the 1% best of the best gold footage. And there was a lot to be learned. More stuff that you know in your career, much better than a civilian like me, but we would go do these pop maneuvers. You know, we were in, um, I think it was Bravo 17 or something like that, a Fallon which had all these really cool targets and craters everywhere. It was really fun for me to see. Mm-hmm. And we'd be low level with an 18 and we would pop and then they would, you know, roll inverted. We'd go with them. They'd pull down, they'd get their target and they'd release a weapon and pull up. And we'd do that with them. Learning how to shoot that and make it look cool is kind of interesting. The maneuver is cool just by itself. And it's really fun, fun for me to get to do as a civilian, especially in formation. But to make it look good on camera is a whole different ballgame. And it took a little bit of time to figure that out. We did that probably 25 times. (laughs) And there's a few of them in the movie that just look incredible. What happens with all the footage that doesn't get used? Does that just get locked up in some vault or does it get repurposed for like a TV show or something? Uh, It's probably, you know, 100 stories underground, massive vault. (laughs) No one will ever see it again. I don't know. I wish I could have it. Yeah, I bet. Joe Kaczynski's running joke when we'd watch the debriefs, we watch our dailies, is that you know he needs to make a Top Gun Extreme, which is just two hours of epic aerial footage. There is so much, Vincent. Oh, yeah. There's so much great footage that there's no time to put it in the movie. Guys like you and I and naval aviators would drool over this stuff for hours and hours, but there's got to be a movie with some sort of time limit on it that people can watch. <laughs> but there is so much. Another great example... You know, we see in this movie, they call it the Cobra Maneuver, and we know the F-18 doesn't necessarily do a Cobra, it doesn't have thrust vectoring, Right. but we made that airplane do a version of a Cobra, we made it squat. And a couple of the pilots, you know, we had figured out that there's a move, I'm going to mess up the terminology, I'm going to let you correct, is there something called a Hibermech? Hibermech? Yeah, I think it has to do with certain altitude, or maybe not the altitude, but airspeed and AOA, you can get the flight controls to do something a little extra for you. I thought you were just going to say you kind of did like an AOA excursion. Well, we did. They did that too, but they'd get the jet to basically squat and kind of almost reverse course. Like a pirouette. Yeah. Let me tell you, the control surfaces on that F-18, when you're in close formation, those things are massive. And it's amazing to see the deflection of those things and the vapor that they create. So Mm -hmm. we did our own variation of a Cobra in an 18. And some of those AOA excursions, as you put it, were pretty extreme in camera right next to those things. Awesome. Yeah. 
It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. So you've mentioned Ferg a couple of times. He's coming up on our next episode. And by the way, I told him I had this interview lined up with you. So he gave me a couple of questions <laughs> that he suggested I ask you. Uh-oh. You may have already answered this one, but he said, hey, Jello, ask Kevin what was the most unique part about flying with the Navy. So I think you know what it's going to be. <laughs> What's that? I don't know how many civilians have gotten to fly approaches down to the deck, but that experience of flying approaches down to the deck of the USS Theodore Roosevelt was something that I get to take with me forever. And I don't know how many civilians get to do that, but man, do I have a whole new level of respect for what you and your colleagues do. Well, thank you. Well, but talk about that. Did you do that in the L39 and wave off or did you, were you in the backseat of something? No, I did that flying uh, as PIC, the Phenom 300. So the Phenom 300, for those of you that don't know it, it's a private jet, kind of a newer build built by Embraer twin engine but it's made for flying passengers. Okay. It's not made for doing what we do with it, but a very nice guy, a friend of ours named Jonathan Spano modified his jet uh, and put two shot overs on it. Same shot over that goes on the L39 Cinejet and one on the nose, one on the tail of this thing. So you can fly with two camera operators and aerial DPs with like different lens sizes. So they sit in the back and this is a really plush jet. This is non-standard. You know, there's a wet bar in the back and a bathroom and wood grain and leather. <laughs> nothing like an F-18. <laughs> no, nothing. In fact, the F-18 pilots that rode on it with us, we'd always try to take some with us just for safety purposes, but it was just good having their expertise on board. They were cracking up back there, just enjoying life, sitting in the back of this jet. Sure. We flew it like we stole it though. We definitely put it through its paces, but that's the jet we chose to use for the Theodore Roosevelt or our carrier operations because of the two engine reliability, because we were very far offshore, because of the extra time on station, burns not necessarily less gas, has two motors, but it's more fuel efficient, carries more gas. So I get more time on station. So we use that jet for the carrier sequence. So there were some requirements, you know, we had to go down and meet with the skipper of the boat and basically uh, the commander of that fleet and a few other people with Berg. And they talked to me about what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. And I'd worked Top Gun for a while and they kind of knew who I was. So there was a nice level of trust and they gave us a good amount of freedom, but still ensuring that the boat was protected. And then Ferg had to be on board with me. And I would never have done that without Ferg on board with me. I'm a civilian and he's a naval aviator. He knows what he's doing. I don't. But I got a great little crash course from Ferg you know, sitting at the FDO in San Diego. No pun intended. Of the lens and paddle. Yeah, exactly. Bad fun. <laughs> you know, paddles and everything that was going to happen, how we find the boat. And that was fantastic. And we had a UHF radio set up. So Ferg was right next to me the whole time I'm flying this thing. Ferg worked comms on the radios. But I remember getting out there when I first saw the boat, you go, wow, that thing's huge. You know, that's awesome. When you first see it in the water, you kind of get chills and you see that thing out there. And we started doing some air work around it and filming it. And you go, wow, that thing's pretty big. But when you line up for your first approach, which to answer your question was down initially to wave offs, just getting me used to going down, get down the line there, following the lens, you line up for it. And as a civilian, the first thing I realized when I lined up for it was, uh, holy crap, that thing's small. You know, (laughs) it's not as big as it looks when you line up on that thing. Yeah. And it was really cool. And of course we had to film into the sun because they wanted this beautiful backlit. So we were slightly blinded and I'm sure you guys go through much worse, but that was the extent of the difficulty for me for that. But you know, just flying down the line and listening to paddles, little left, little power. That was all very, very cool for a civilian pilot and had Ferg right next to me. We did the first two safety runs with a pretty early wave off. And then we got into the next segment of it where I was allowed to go down to this kind of 10 foot height above the deck. And that was really, really cool. Wow. Definitely got my heart rate up. Definitely got my excitement up. The verbal that you feel is no joke. You know, the big wings on the phenom would sit out there and flex around and 
it was interesting, but man, it made for an epic shot, which is absolutely in the movie. I will never forget that experience. Well, hence the honorary hooker at 21. So that's great. Again, you know, we'll warn people about spoilers or whatever, but is that the scene that we'll see at the end as he's setting up for the barricade or a different part? That's the spot. Okay. Well, so my second question from Ferg was, quote unquote, going to the boat with him. So I think you just answered that, but let's keep talking about the boat. Obviously, the opening scenes of the movie are a homage, if you will, to the first Top Gun, just with different aircraft. I thought it was amazing. And again, we got to see that at Hook as a preview. I think it was, I guess, last year. But any big challenges or uh, surprises for you being on the flight deck? I assume you were there and orchestrating a lot of that. How did that go? Anything relatable for the audience here that might enjoy? Sure. Well, actually, I wasn't lucky enough to be out at sea with everything I did with the TR was at dock and meetings and what we were going to do with the air-to-air assets. So I only flew around it. Okay. But I can tell you, you know, when you watch the movie, Joe Kaczynski does the perfect amount of kind of tipping the hat to the original movie, especially in some of the most iconic scenes. You know, when you watch the beginning of the movie, if you are a naval aviator or you loved that first movie, I guarantee you, you will get chills. It's exactly how we want Top Gun to start, trust me. And it starts, you know, obviously we have better technology. When you look at the clarity of the lenses versus what they shot in 1986, it's amazing. It shows those beautiful deck operations and the perfect newest technology. It's incredible. And the right music. Oh, yeah. You know, when I watched it, I thought, man, I used to do that. (laughs) So it's pretty cool to, uh, yeah. What's that make you feel like when you see it? You know, when I did it, I'll be honest, you know, when you're out there day in and day out, you forget about the glamour and and the joy of it and the beauty because you've got some petty problem that you're working on paperwork or somebody's bugging you about something. So you get caught up in the minutia of life. But when you have a chance to see it from that perspective, or in my case, a couple of years back, I had a chance to do a uh, day cruise with my brother's family and my own family. So we went out on the Ronald Reagan for the day and watched flight ops. And it was just so cool to watch it from the perspective of a guest, but also with my family right there. Yeah. And I was just proud, you know, and not in an arrogant way, but I was like, you know, first off, it's cool that we have as a nation figured out how to do this. But secondly, man, I used to do that too. You have to pinch yourself sometimes. Do you find when you were doing it for your job that you were more hyper-focused on your mission at hand? And when you stood back, you kind of watched everything just the workings of it as a whole? I think you end up getting, I'll play politician and avoid your question, because I just don't know. I mean, day in and day out, you're doing it, you're trying to do it well, and you know that people are watching. So again, you're being evaluated in a sense. But I don't think you really think about the larger picture, if you will, of it until you get away from it. So for example, whenever we would pull in for a port visit someplace where they couldn't pull pier side, but they would do Liberty boats, even though we'd just been stuck on that big hunk for a month or two, everybody on the Liberty boat, when we pulled away, would turn around and look at it. Like, wow, there's the ship. You know, like, look at that thing. It's huge. It's always this kind of like, oh man, I can't believe there's three more months of cruise. But on the other hand, it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. I think you just need, like I said, either whether it's those friends and family day cruises or the movie or something else to just remind you once in a while that what you do is so special. And I think it sounds like for you who had at one time the desire to do that, and we have a lot of folks on this who listen to the show that still want to. So we always encourage them to go for it. But you know, for you that wanted to at one point, and then you decided to take a different path, but then to go out and essentially kind of play the role for a while and still feel the butterflies in your stomach. I mean, that's a good testament to just how dynamic it really is. And then I think you guys did a great job of portraying that to the world via this movie. Thanks, Vincent. It was definitely a pinch yourself moment every day I was working on this movie. I bet. And being out flying around the boat was one of those days. Yeah. The boat was a cool experience too. We had all these filming maneuvers and we even had flybys and stuff that we had to film. We did it by ourselves and we also did it with other super hornets. So we had to shoot images of guys landing on the deck and getting catted off. All that was really, really cool. Yeah. I remember our first low pass over the carrier, highly coordinated, highly briefed and highly watched over by the gentleman in charge of the boat there. I flew the Phenom and I came across the bow and this big left wing up flyby from the bow to the stern off the port side of the boat. And that was a camera move that we had to do. 
And I remember making it and going, man, this feels so wrong. Feels like I'm not supposed to be here. I hope they're okay with this. <laughs> and it was really cool in the downwind after we cut camera and we were setting up for another one. The skipper of the boat came on the UHF radio, which we were kind of blasting in the speaker, the whole jets. So we can all hear it. And he said, oh, I look good, Kevin. Uh, thought you were going to come a little lower. And I kind of looked back at Berg and I was like, did he just tell me I could do that? <laughs> So I think I was maybe a little conservative in my first pass, but having the skipper of the boat tell you that definitely feels good. A uh, little vote of confidence and trust. Yeah. And uh, that was pretty neat. And very deliberate on his part, because later if something bad had happened, he could say, I was just asking him a question. I didn't tell him to go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, I think we're almost out, but I got a couple more questions I'd like to ask you if I can. Yeah. So Ferg told me long ago, he said, Jello, all the flying scenes are real. And so I just want to pick that statement apart with you for a little bit. And I want to answer some people that inevitably on YouTube are going to say, no, Tom Cruise didn't quote fly the Super Hornet. So stop me if I'm wrong here, but Tom Cruise flew in the back of the Super Hornet, as did many other actors. And whether he actually physically controlled the aircraft or not, you can tell me. But he also did get a catapult shot off the TR. Is that all correct? All correct. Tom Cruise did some flying. I mean, he flew his World War II fighter in the he did an incredible job doing that. His North American P-51 Mustang, those scenes were pretty dynamic as well. The great thing is Tom is an aviator. He'd come in in the Mustang, hop out of the Mustang, go breathe in the F-18. Sometimes he'd fly his Honda jet in. He flies helicopters. He literally does fly <laughs> many different platforms. He's able to strap those things on, and he flies them well. Yeah. And when I'm directing him in the air or telling him where to be, he hits his marks. He flies with precision and developed a trust level as we all yeah. do with people that we fly with. You sort of trust them over time. Yeah. Um, so we did an incredible job. And the neat thing is being an aviator and a lover of aviation, when we watch Top Gun Maverick and we see Tom in the back seat, it looks like he's flying. And he knows where to look. You know, he knew the airplane. He studied it hard. He knows knowing how to move his body and where to move his face. To me, it, that's almost flying right there as close, as good as it gets in the back of that 18. It looks incredible. You know, he's a professional, right? He works hard. It sounds like I've never met the man, but from everything I've heard and seen, he shows up, he works hard, he puts in the background to make sure it's convincing, and apparently he loves doing it. So that's all very cool. Let me give you this and your audience, and I think they'll appreciate this. In the beginning of Top Gun Maverick, we got many speeches, great speeches, but there's one speech from Tom that lived with me throughout the movie, and it was a very motivational speech that I feel like set the bar for filming. And it basically went something like this generalizing it, but we're at a disadvantage. We are making a sequel to an iconic historic film. And we had to wait this long so that there was a story worthy of being told. And there absolutely is. The Top Gun Maverick story is incredible. Just by itself, without the flying. It's a great movie. We had to wait to make sure that there was technology that would allow us to tell that story. And we did. Hence the Cinejet and the shot over F1 Wash camera and the Sony Venices that were on board the 18s. Now we have that technology. And he said, the world expects something from this movie, which no one has ever seen before. And it is our job to obtain a level of perfection that has not yet been seen on the big screen. And we could not settle for anything less than perfection. If something wasn't perfect, if an airplane didn't move quite right, if it wasn't low enough or fast enough, if the performance from the actors wasn't perfect, we were going to redo it or do it better. Every time there was a storyboard or pre-visualization or a computer-generated image that we would follow along, a storyboard, if you will, that we'd go shoot, we couldn't go shoot that. That was only the basis, and we'd have to go make something better. That was my initial get-go on the movie from Tom himself, hmm. is that we wanted to obtain a level of perfection for Top Gun Maverick in which the world has never seen. And I can tell you today, the ratings that we're seeing, the critic reviews that we're seeing, the people talking about the movie, even the naval aviators and their take on the movie, it's incredible. And I think we hit our mark. And it was speeches like those in the beginning that really kind of set the crew off on this mission of Top Gun Maverick. Well, he could be an honorary naval officer, and he should be, because that's the kind of leadership that can make the difference on a carrier like the Theodore Roosevelt or a squadron or a base. And so good on him for recognizing that. And yeah, you guys, as far as I'm concerned, hit the grand slam, because I think you did that and more. So again, right, all the flying scenes are real, yep. but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything we see is real, because I'm quite certain you didn't go borrow a, uh, an F-14 from our former friends, now adversaries. But also, just for example, the two aircraft flying in very close formation 
and Tom comes buzzing up between the two and kind of knocks them off, if you will. And my guess is, and what I've been mentioning on social media is, hey, look, those are two separate flying scenes in a sense stitched together. And then the F-14 was some airplane that was filmed. And then in visual effects afterwards, we turn it into an F-14. Am I correct on those? Yeah, you nailed it. So here's the beauty for the pilots and the aviators that are listening to this. Everything on Top Gun Maverick had to be real flying. There was a baseline set that we were not allowed to shoot plates. And for those of you who don't know what a plate is, we see those all the time in movies where the guy flying with me or filming in the jet or airplane or helicopter I'm flying will shoot blank sky and whip the camera around. And later they'll put a jet in there or a spaceship or a alien, whatever. That's a plate uh. or something that's going to be added CGI. That was strictly not allowed on Top Gun Maverick, which I love. <laughs> and for aviators watching the movie, every time you see an aircraft on screen, you have to understand that there's really an aircraft there. And it's a baseline. They reskin it. So it's slightly enhanced by CGI to become an aircraft that's not readily available. A fifth generation fighter that we couldn't bring into the US, or like you said, borrowing an F 14 for someone who'll never give us an F 14. <laughs> I'm sure if we could have gotten one, we would have gotten one. But yeah. there's an aircraft there. There's an F 18. For everyone who's seen the movie, you're going to see the movie. This is in the trailer. It's not a spoiler. There's this really cool shot of an F 14 just barreling right under the camera. You know the one I'm talking about? It was. The first time everybody saw an F-14 and the world kind of freaked out going, what is that doing in this movie? How is that possible? That's right. Well, that's really an F-18 that's flown by Griff, uh, one of the amazing pilots that flew for us on Top Gun. At the time, he was with BFA-122 out of Lamore. Now he's with a different squadron. I think he's actually overseas right now. But that was a sequence in which an F-18, I believe that was an E model, came ripping underneath the helicopter that I flew just feet away and made this iconic, beautiful shot that then CGI artists, the visual effects artists go in and they keep everything. They keep the textures, they keep the reflections, they keep the flight dynamics so that when guys like you and I watch that and go, I know they didn't have an F-14, but man, that looks real. I'm not quite understanding that. That's because it's right. a rhino and that's just, just reskin. And there's probably an entire world of movie magic that I don't know anything about, but you kind of sense as the viewer, right? So for example, in certain movies, if they take a boat and they put a model of it in water, something about your brain just knows that water doesn't work that way. It's just the texture is not right. The weight isn't right. And so, yes, I think you guys did get the weight, I guess, if that's the right word, and the speed all correct, at least for my eye and looking at those. And even the SU-57 that we see, again, it's in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler, but it looked very convincing. Yep. You also spoke on something else, and you're exactly right. And for pilots, we'll love this too. Again, there's no fake airplanes in the movie. There's something there doing that maneuver, but we call it a comp, and that's a visual effects thing. Okay. So in the shot where, and it's in the trailer, so we'll talk about it, but when the F-18 Tom blasts right through the formation of those two other F-18s, mm -hmm. that would be extremely tight and extremely dangerous at that speed. But there's really an F-18 barreling diagonally through our shot. That's absolutely happening. In that same sequence, in that same terrain and light, we shot two guys in formation that do this radical breakaway as if something spooked them. Right. So again, all real airplanes, all real moves, and a beautiful composition enhanced by you know just a little bit of visual effects give us this very real, visceral look. And yeah. we as pilots know that we're watching, there's a core there that's realistic. Real airplanes, but fake bridges, might I ask? Yeah, there's definitely a, <laughs> there's definitely a bridge in there that might not have been. That there. opening was a bit small. I found myself kind of shinking down in my seat when I uh, watched. I that. kind of ducked when I watched it too. Uh, but no, done very well. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and that's a testament to the creators of the movie, the producers Paramount, and of course the naval aviators who flew those things for us. Yeah. Another fun thing that I think you'll love is that we spent a great deal of time scouting terrain. To make a movie amazing with aerials, well, one, you got to tell the aerial story really good. You got to get in there with the latest technology. We definitely got in there, but you need the right light. Light is key. I mean, you shoot something midday, everything just looks flat. And, you know, for the pilots on here, when we fly at noon or 12 o'clock, that doesn't look beautiful. But when we fly around at sunset or sunrise, we get texture, we get shadows and we get rays of light. We've all seen it as aviators and pilots. Well, it's the same thing with the camera. If you shoot midday, nothing looks good. It's just bright and blowing out. Nothing's really cool. So uh, huge emphasis on the correct lighting. And then terrain and background, again, from for the pilots that are listening to this, there's a lot of naval routes that are stunning and beautiful, some more so than others. There's a route up north called the Million Dollar Route. I was informed, I think it's VR, is it 255? You know it better than I do. 
I've never actually had a chance to fly it, but I've always heard good things about it. It's incredible. Yeah. Now we didn't use the million dollar out. We went off route and we locked up bits and chunks <laughs> of airspaces and put up <laughs> TFRs and places to keep interlopers out of it the best we could. We went out in helicopters. I flew one that had a safety helicopter following me. We went out deep into the Cascade mountain range and our job was to find the craziest terrain we could find. And I had no idea that we had terrain like this in the U.S., but there's like massive 7,000 foot vertical development cliffs and these huge bulls and these really cool places to fly F-18s, let me tell you. (laughs) But our job was to go out there and find amazing routes and amazing terrain. And we did that. And then we would label them and we would name them and color code them. And that's the nth degree of how well we were briefed. And we'd brief and go, hey, we're going to go fly blue route today. And by the way, blue route's my favorite. Blue route, for anybody who doesn't know, is it was found by, uh, I'll give him some credit, Fisty. He's deployed right now, but Fisty was uh, one of our amazing pilots. And he went out and found this one route. We found it with the helicopter, but he first flew with the F-18. Okay. And it's this huge, got to be like a 60 or 70 degree incline, but it, it's kind of enveloped into like this half pipe, like almost snowboarding, but it's big. You could probably fly a B-52 through the thing if you can get one in there. But when you throw the F-18 through there with some speed, it's pretty exhilarating. You'll see it in the movie. It's part of the final sequence. And Blue Route was insane. I flew a helicopter in there. I flew the L-39 through there. I flew the Phenom through there. But man, it's probably some pretty wild places. 18s have never been in their life. And man, they did a good job in there, I'll tell you. Well, I like to hope I'm correct in saying that F-18 pilots as a whole are professional guys and gals, and it sounds like you saw that in your experience. And man, Kevin, we could certainly go on talking about all this uh, ad nauseum because it's just exciting and there's a lot of buzz around this movie. And and I really do think you guys hit the grand slam on this one. Uh, It means a lot, Vincent. It, It was a giant team effort. Yeah. All the way up from the studio who was putting the funds into it to make sure that we were shooting it right to Tom and Joe Kaczynski and Claudio Miranda, our creative team and our director and DP to making sure every little detail was perfect to Tom driving home that everything needed to be real and everything needed to be perfect. Can't thank him enough for that to the Navy, to the support staff, the crew chiefs, the maintainers, the schedulers, the range controllers. You know, we just talk about the pilots, but there's a village. There's tons of people behind the scenes that are keeping those aircraft flying Keeping us safe in airspace, there's a massive village of people in the United States Navy and the Department of Defense that had a stake in making this movie successful and safe, and I am appreciative of all of them. One last thing I'll end with for you is, you know, I got a little bit into the brotherhood and sisterhood and camaraderie of the U.S. Navy, and I told you that was a life that I knew I wanted at a young age, and I stayed on my path to do this life. But to feel like I was part of that crew was really special. And there is a camaraderie that I learned and loved and got to be part of for a short time. And I always tell people who don't really understand what you do and your colleagues do, that at any given time, there's a hero somewhere sitting in an 18, sweating their ass off, alert, ready, five, sitting on a catapult, loaded with gills, ready to go stand in the way of anything that might affect or hurt or threaten our livelihood. And we don't think about that, but that could be happening any second of the day. I think of it now, and I tell people that all the time. I appreciate all of your service, everything you've done, people that are current, active, and retired, and thankful to have you all. Well, here, here. And to your previous point, that person who's sitting in that aircraft on alert is supported by dozens of people on the deck that are making sure the catapult is ready, the ship is steering, the food is ready when you get back, the mail is delivered, the clothes are washed. I mean, yeah, like you said, it takes the whole village. And I think nowhere is that more evident than when you go to an air show and you might watch the Air Force Thunderbirds or the Navy's Blue Angels and you say, oh, look at those six pilots. Isn't that cool? Well, you have no idea of all the people that make those six aircraft shine for that 40 minutes. And so you got to enjoy that. And frankly, I would say I miss it. I mean, you leave the Navy and there's a giant gap in your life after you miss that ready room and all the things that were, you know, mandatory fun. Oh, I can't believe we have to go get together. But then when you do, you you always have a great time. And so I'm glad you got to experience that, Kevin. And you also shared that a little bit in the movie as well. So appreciate that. Thanks, Vincent. Absolutely. All right. Hey, before we let you go, a couple final questions we always ask our guests here on the show. First is, what's the future hold for you? And, you know, you guys, I'm sure, in showbiz don't like to talk too much about what's coming down the road, but there's at least one other military aviation movie that I think comes out later this year that you had a hand in. Can you talk about it? 
I'm sure glad you asked. So uh, <laughs> the United States Navy is going to get a lot of attention this year, and I'm pretty excited for everybody. So on the backside of Top Gun, we're going to be introduced, and we just started in getting introduced to it. And you're going to see a trailer come out here pretty soon. There's another naval aviation movie coming out. This time it is a true story, and there's a beautiful, amazing book written by Adam Makos about this story. And it follows uh, naval aviator ensign Jesse Brown through his times. And this is a Korean War era movie. So we used Corsairs and MiG-17s and 15s and Sky Raiders. This is really cool naval aviation. And we kind of got to dive back in history a little bit and help people understand a time in history that is a little misunderstood, not misunderstood, but just not readily known about. There's some amazing stories. And this particular story, Devotion, is a very heroic story. We kind of talked a little bit about the brotherhood, sisterhood, and camaraderie of the United States Navy, and especially within their aviators. We see that, and it's told by uh, some amazing actors, including Glenn Powell, one of the actors of Top Gun, oh, cool. is one of the mains of devotion, and then now a pilot himself. We get to see Glenn in this, along with Jonathan Majors. Yeah. And it's overcoming diversity, you know, seeing through things like racism, and really just putting forth that brotherhood and camaraderie and it there's a really true sense of uh, heroism in this movie and uh, some courageous things that happen so i'm excited for people to see it look for the trailer dropping here pretty soon we're going to start seeing images released from the movie the producers of this movie black label media went to great lengths to make sure that they hired the top gun aerial crew because they wanted to follow that same drive of real aerials practical flying practical stunts and it is. We had Corsairs and Sky Raiders. We used the L-39 Cinejet. We went back into the Cascade Mountains with these old aircraft, which is posed, probably another podcast. I'll tell you all about those challenges. <laughs> but again, a real flying movie with practical stunts that I think the world will love. A true story about some courageous events in the United States Navy and some amazing individuals. And I'm glad their story is going to be told on the big screen. No doubt. I look forward to it. Oh, by the way, Captain Brian Ferguson came and helped us with that again. I mean, <laughs> uh, second movie I've got to work with Ferg on. We needed somebody who spoke the movie lingo, and Ferg is perfect with that, there you go. as well as being Navy. And he came in and helped us make sure that movie was accurate and used the tailhook and society to make sure everything was real and accurate. Outstanding. Well, we'll have to have you back on in October when that comes out there, Kevin. So final question for you, as we always ask our guests, I don't know if it applies to you or not, but I thought I saw K2 in one of your emails is how you got your call sign. So have you been bestowed a call sign of sorts as much as you spent time around fighter pilots? You know, the running joke while working on Top Gun is that that call sign would change because nothing traumatic happened to me to get K2. I didn't embarrass myself. So I know it'll change one day. I got lucky on Top Gun and didn't do anything too stupid that stuck with me. But K2 is Kevin LaRosa second. My dad's K1. I'm K2. We used to work on film sets together. Somebody would say Kevin on the radio. We'd both answered and people just got frustrated <laughs> with it. And all of a sudden I started becoming K2. And I kind of went with it. So uh, on movie sets, I'm usually known as K2. I turn to about anything though. Okay. And yeah, I know I, I love the call sign thing. I'm sure mine will change eventually. I just haven't really done the thing that's going to stick with me forever yet, but I'd love to know how you got yours. Jello is just, it was one of the names that was thrown up on the whiteboard when I was a brand new pilot in my first squadron. I think one day a department head walked in and looked at the various names on there and looked at Jello and looked at me and goes, Jello, Aiello. And it just had this roller coaster kind of ring to it. And so then the next day he walked in and said, Hello, Jello, Aiello. So I don't know. There was no, like, I'm not spineless per se. I guess I am maybe, but that it wasn't because of that. I think it was just because it had a fun roller coaster ring to it. Vincent, you do realize I spent a year with the Navy and I learned that there's a PC version of call signs and then there's the real version of the call sign. <laughs> and I'm hoping one day over a beer, maybe I get the real version out of you. That seems too PC. Yeah, I'm sorry to say it's not any more exciting than that. Oh, but uh, despite my trying, and I definitely did some shenanigans in Singapore and different places over my deployments, but this is about you, mister, not me. So anyway, hey, just real quick before I let you go, when I was a kid, I used to love a television series called Airwolf. And a little birdie told me that either you or your dad or something had a hand in that. Is that true? That's absolutely true. My dad was one of the main Airwolf pilots, and he actually owned <laughs> Airwolf for the last two years of the show. Really? I used to fly around in uh, Airwolf as a baby. No kidding. Yeah, my dad did some amazing stunt work and flew that helicopter all over. And he would take it on air shows. He would take it on the air show circuit and do a big demonstration with it. So the funny story there, real quick, uh, and then I'll let you go, is my dad used to like traveling with my mom, of course, and I was a little baby. 
and they would take Airwolf to these air shows. And in the back Airwolf, there'd be a crib, and, you know, diaper stuff and baby stuff. And you could never land an air show and let that come out of that helicopter. That helicopter was this iconic, crazy thing, you know? And so my dad would get to air shows. He'd typically go land behind a hangar somewhere <laughs> off airport and kick my mom out and all the baby stuff. And then he'd go over and do this huge entrance flyby. No one had any idea. There was a little nursery in the back of that thing sometimes. <laughs> that should have been a call sign right there, but yeah, right? Oh, that's awesome. K2, on behalf of the listeners, thank you for everything you've done for Hollywood, but specifically for Top Gun Maverick, this movie that we all love and enjoy, and we're going to all see, I'm sure, dozens of times. Thanks for your hour here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Vincent. All right. Thanks again, K2, for that awesome discussion. And thanks to your team, which includes Jennifer, Demetria, and SG for setting us up on that discussion. Man, I really learned a lot. Plates, comps, never heard about all that, but it makes sense. And so, yeah, I think you guys did a great job. Anyone who's seen the movie, everyone I've talked to anyway, all loves the flying scenes. Some of it filmed in flight, some on mountaintops, some on the boat. Great job. Really appreciate it. Now, I'm looking forward to Devotion. I don't know what we'll do around that film in October like we did around Top Gun Maverick, but certainly something to consider. And I know our team is working on a Corsair episode at some point, so we might have to save that for October. And if you're wondering what Bravo 17 is, it's also called Baker 17 on some charts. That is just one of the target complexes east of Fallon along Highway 50 in Nevada. And then the speed example kind of reminds me of some things we've talked about here on the show before, I think, which is I sometimes get questions from people. What's it like to go Mach 1 or 800 knots or whatever? And I tell them it's like in your car. It depends on your altitude. I mean, in a car, right? If you pass some hills or mountains in the distance, you don't really feel your speed. But even 65 miles an hour feels pretty fast when those speed limit signs go whizzing by your car just a couple feet away. And so as Kevin was talking about, trying to make that sense of speed. Yeah, it reminds me of flying at low altitude versus flying a little higher. It doesn't really matter how fast you're going when you're up higher. And then the last thing is, I know I'm aging myself when I talk a lot about Firefox and Airwolf, but man, I really did enjoy that show. When I was a kid, it was in the mid 80s and I think it featured what, gosh, who was it? Ernest Borgnine and Jan Michael Vincent, something like that. And they had that cool helicopter and flew it around. And (laughs) to know that Kevin was a baby in the back of that thing just cracks me up. Good, good stuff. All right, let's wrap it up, folks. We've got one new mission commander on Patreon to announce. That's Reagan Rice. He and I just used one of his perks earlier today. We had our 30-minute monthly discussion. And Reagan, appreciate your support of the show as well as the rest of the Patreon supporters. But Reagan, get after it. You know what I'm talking about. Make the phone calls. Go talk to the right people. Don't let this movie swell. Get there before you do. You got to get after it and uh, keep me posted. All right, everyone, that will do it for this week. You heard Kevin talk about Brian Ferguson, Ferg. You might even remember him from episode two. That's right. He was the Navy's advisor to Paramount, and he is coming up next week to talk about all the different things that he had to do, all the coordination, the meetings he was in, three people meetings. The other two were Jerry Bruckheimer and Tom Cruise. He's driving Tom Cruise around in his car, talking to him about, hey, we're about to go to this squadron. Please go talk to the maintenance folks. Let them know you're grateful for all the flying time you're getting. It's a really cool discussion. Do not miss it. It's coming up in 10 short days here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Until then, be well. We'll see ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. 
National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.